Good afternoon, everyone. It's Dr. Nigro again with our next episode of Psychology Unplugged. We are doing this a day later than we usually do on Sundays because today is Labor Day in the United States, and I actually decided to take the day off from work. Um, although I'm very blessed that as much as I do work, I never feel like I'm working. Um, and again, that is a true blessing. And I always like to start each episode with a heartfelt thank you to all the followers that we have. Um, I, I say this as much as I can. I am grateful to my, my mother for teaching me to live in a world outside the box and to question everything and go out and change the rules. And my father for giving me the inspiration to start this podcast. And um, we do the best that we can Um to just impart our knowledge and wisdom and experience and it's so fun when we get to talk to people uh, and it's so cool how many people are going into the field of psychology whether they're going into julie's field of of uh psychiatric uh, nurse practitioners or my field of of neuropsychology and or people who are getting into cognitive behavioral therapy so it, it's as it just this just is a fun thing and, and love doing this and uh i i've been uh trying to take a more a systematic approach to these podcasts. I know sometimes, and I think we, you know, there's opportunities for for more um, just conversational and, and esoteric ones. And I love when you guys, uh, I would love to do like a question and answer type thing where you guys just email questions because some questions I think just from talking with people can be answered in, you know, a, a two, three minute conversation um, versus doing an entire podcast. But, um, you know, as a huge music fan, obviously, you know, my affinity towards Bruce Springsteen, a heartfelt uh, goodbye to Jimmy Buffett. Uh, always loved his music growing up. It was just laid back. Um, island life, very different than growing up in Chicago, but uh, definitely one of the true music legends. So uh, this, this today's podcast I'm going to revisit bipolar disorder and talk about some more idiosyncrasies because a lot of people have reached out and asked if I could do more information about bipolarity. Um, and as a diagnostician, this is a very common uh, referral question that I get. And even if it's not a specific referral question that I get, anytime you're dealing with any of the mood disorders, let's say depression, I I believe it's crucial and paramount to – there's Julie with the water, not – like clockwork, um, I believe it's paramount to do a, the full diagnostic process because unipolar depression, which is strictly major depressive disorder, is very different than bipolar depression, and they are treated differently from a psychopharmacological standpoint. And whether Julie pops in and out, I'm not sure, but I can I can speak to different medication issues. Um, as relates to bipolarity and, and also some coping mechanisms, not only for individuals with, with bipolar, but also for individuals who are in relationship with bipolar. So I want to start out by saying I'm going to stick, I'm going to stick primarily in this topic with bipolar one. Uh, there's bipolar one, there's bipolar two. And there's cyclothymic disorder. And just as a refresher, the only difference between bipolar 1 and bipolar 2 is that the depression is the same. Mania and hypomania are the same symptoms. The differentiating factor is simply the duration of time that those symptoms persist. Cyclothymic disorder is when someone does not meet the full criteria for major depressive disorder or hypomania or, or a manic episode. Uh, it's the least severe 
and I mentioned this in one of the episodes on, on depression, uh, atypical de- depression with mixed features is a variation of hypomania and manic symptoms in the context of depression that's really not bipolar. But for the sake of this specific episode, I want to stick with bipolar, and I'm not going to go through the the or the different symptoms of mania and major depressive disorder because I've done that already, but I want to get to more specific things that many people might, might not be aware of and things that are very crucial in my role in knowing uh, prevalence rates and, and risk risk factors, and, and I, I defer to the, the DSM, and I defer to one of the best, uh, a lot of people ask, like, what's, what's, what's one book that you can get? Uh, it's expensive, but I know I had this was kind of the, the, the gold standard in, in my training in both my master's and my doctor program is Synopsis of Psychiatry by Kaplan and Sadock, S-A-D-D-O-C-K. Uh, it's something that I refer to um, if I need to. Uh, it's, it's, it's a great book, but I you know, I've, I've pulled this stuff together as I prepare each week uh, to be more specific in giving facts. I know a lot of people who are in the profession use these podcasts uh, for their own refreshers or education or enhancing whatever they wherever they are. Just people who, in general who want to learn more about these. Uh, you know, the vast majority of psychopathology or psychiatric conditions. Julie, please. Um, the next episode, uh, someone also had asked, um, and emailed me who is a psychiatric in school to be a psychiatric prescriber to do an episode on what are called the paraphilic disorders. Uh, that is going to take a little bit of time. I'm going to put that together because that's a very unique and specific class of disorders. And that's where you're getting into frauderism, voyeurism, uh, pedophilia, sexual masochism. Those, those are very specific, dis- you know, distinct group of disorders. But I, I will get to that at some point because it, it is something that I do diagnose and is actually very, very common. All right. So, all right, let's start with bipolar. So with, with the, the development of bipolar, and again, I'm trying to stick with bipolar one, the mean age of onset generally is about 18 years for bipolar one. Um, when you're dealing with kids, you really have to figure out um, what is the difference in behaviors from their baseline functioning. And uh I, I remember reading this article years ago. One of the one of the key factors in pediatric bipolarity is lack of empathy and purposeful violence. So whereas in a child with ADHD is on the playground and they run and little Johnny knocks Mary over. The teacher brings Johnny back and says, Johnny, you, you knocked Mary over. And he, the ADC kid's like, oh, my God, I didn't, I didn't know what I'm sorry. I was paying attention because they're clumsy and they're dysregulated motorically. And they're hyperactive, if that's the type. Um, or inattentive, just not paying attention. Uh, the child with pediatric bipolarity, when, when Johnny is brought back to talk to Mary, he says, yeah, so what? She was in my way. In purposeful violence, uh, you know, acting out for the pure sake of acting out. These are these are very subtle but very important uh, delineating factors when we're dealing with the pediatric onset of, of bipolar. But with kids, um, it's really important to understand, you know, you, what is the difference from their baseline. And and, and again, bipolar is again not mood swings. It is a transition into an alternative mood state. Uh, when people say, oh, you're so moody or you're so bipolar, it frustrates me because it really takes away from the integrity of the severity of this particular diagnosis. 
And it's it's very similar when people say, well, oh, oh my God, she's so borderline or he's so borderline. It, it, it frustrates me as a professional because I'm doing the best I can to try. And I'm, again, one person um, trying to, you know, educate and, and, and legitimize and demystify mental health, but given the credibility and the integrity that it deserves, that, that bipolar, please make sure you understand it is not mood swings. It's a transition into an alternative mood state for a specified period of time. And this is why it is so crucial. And I, maybe I'm biased, but I do believe in this wholeheartedly, that if any kind of mood symptoms are present with you, yourself, your child, your friends, your siblings, get a neuropsych eval. Because it is so crucial because if you are put on the wrong medication for bipolar or for depression and you have bipolar, it could lead to very catastrophic consequences. But we have the tools and the assessment measures and the ability to deal with this. And I, this is something I confront on a day-to-day basis. So please don't just assume it's, it's bipolar. You always want to rule out by unipolar depression from bipolar depression. And, you know, an interview can only do so much, a 15-minute conversation. And at least in the United States, this is just the way our, our, our society is built. You know, sometimes prescribers or therapists get 30 minutes, maybe 45 minutes to try to figure out, you know, come up with a diagnosis, then maybe medicate them. And no one's doing anything wrong. It's just take advantage of, of a field that's able to give you the, with, you know, definitive answers. But, you know, the, the other important thing for with, with bipolar that most people aren't aware of is, is onset, it, it occurs throughout the life cycle, uh, and sometimes first onsets can be in the 60s and 70s. And this is where it's really important that if, you know, older individuals start to have this decline or this, this, this change, it's, you know, the odd symptom of, you know, manic symptoms, which is usually like, like social or, or uh, sexual disinhibition in, in later midlife, really you need to get to see and have a neuropsych- neuropsychological evaluation because you need to rule out frontal temporal neurocognitive disorder or or and if any kind of there is substance uh, ingestion or substance withdrawal, both of which can mimic um, depression or mania or you know or hypomania. So, you know, I can get, I'll do a topic at some point on the neurodegenerative disorders, but, but, but frontal temporal neurocognitive disorder, if you take a look back at, um, if you guys remember, uh, Phineas Gage, he was, uh, I think he was a railroad worker and I, I don't remember what state it was, but this was kind of the, the, you know, etiology of, of neuroscience and neuropsychology was he was a railroad worker and he was putting down, and he was a peaceful man. He was a family man. He was a church going man. Um, and he had, uh, I think a railroad tie exploded and went right through his, under his jaw, uh, up into the orbital prefrontal cortex. And surprisingly, he survived and they were able to remove it. And, uh, after he healed, uh, whatever that was during that time frame, uh, he became a violent drunk, uh, hypersexual, uh, aggressive, um, mean, and it was kind of the reason of how we know, like how we know what parts of the brain control what regions is from studying broken brains. So if this, if, if he had damaged this area and this is the result of behaviors, then we know that this part of the brain controls this. So if you ever get to Massachusetts or if you live here, the actual, his skull and the actual railroad tie that pierced his skull is in one of the museums in Harvard. Um, so another part about with bipolar is more than 90% of people who have a single manic episode go on to have recurrent mood episodes. 
Uh, so really to meet the diagnostic criteria for bipolarity, an individual really only has to have one manic episode Again, not bipolar, be hypomanic. One manic episode to meet the diagnostic criteria. Now, the case that I have found is rarely is it ever one manic episode. Um, About 60% of manic episodes occur immediately before a major depressive episode. So, you know, there's kind of a, an amping up and a, you start to kind of see that the patient will, will tell us, and especially those who have had this disorder for a while and, and know their symptoms well, they can start to sense the buildup in the trajectory of I'm starting to move into a manic episode. And individuals with bipolar one uh, who have what are called at least four or more manic episodes within a year, that's what's called rapid cycling. So rapid cycling is not depression mania, depression mania, depression mania. That's not rapid cycling. Rapid cycling is having at least four manic episodes within a year to meet the diagnostic criteria for manic cycling, rapid cycling. So when people say they constantly have mood swings, I think this it's really understandable from this perspective because this is this is the data. This is not I'm not pulling this out of thin air. This is based in, in, in the research. Um uh, environmental factors contribute. Uh, so bipolar is more common in high-income than in low-income countries. Um, separated, divorced, widowed individuals have a higher rate of bipolar one than individuals who are married, have never been married. Um, so, and there's also genetic and physiological factors. And, and bipolar has a strong, a very, very strong heritability index. Um, so. You know, when I'm doing a structured diagnostic clinical interview, and it's crucial uh, that I ask people that, you know, you know, I've, you know, before they come for their eval as much as I can, can you please gather as much of a family history as possible? Now, it gets a little older when I have, a little, more, little more, more, more difficult when I have older individuals because mental health was something that really e- either wasn't talked about or there was so much shame associated with it that you hid crazy Uncle Harry in the closet or... Um, you, you, you just never talked about it. You know, grandma was just institutionalized, but it was never talked about. So it makes it a little more difficult, but sometimes it can extrapolate and go from the framework. Okay, like I'll usually say, okay, unspecified mental health issues. And I'm kind of thinking in the realm of like possible bipolarity, schizophrenia. Those are the ones that tend to get institutionalized or at least did back in, you know, previous generations. Um, but family history is one of the, is one of the most, is one of the strongest and most consistent risk factors for for bipolar. Um, And there's a tenfold increased risk among adult relatives and individuals with bipolar 1 and bipolar 2. So again, family history is is crucial. Um, Let's see what else I write here. Uh, Okay, Uh, females are more likely to experience rapid cycling in mixed states and have patterns of, of, of comorbidity um, than males, including higher rates of, of different disorders. Um, so comorbidity means coexisting disorders, eating disorders, um, body dysmorphic disorder, gender identity disorder, a variety of things. So females, uh, again, we don't always know why, but obviously I think you would talk about, and Julie's always referred to neurotransmission, and that's primarily what bipolarity is. It is It is very, it is, is really a chemical imbalance. Um, there's chemical imbalances in, in depression. There's chemical imbalances in schizophrenia, excess dopamine, 
chemical imbalances in depression, uh, a depletion of serotonin. Um, but it's, it's, it's important to understand these things that because, uh, you know, females with bipolar well, generally have uh, experienced depressive symptoms more often than males, and they also have a higher lifetime risk of alcohol use, which which you would think would be different. Men are typically thought of as having are more prone to substance abuse and alcoholism, whereas whereas females have a higher lifetime risk of alcohol use than males, um, than the general population, and you know the. The lifetime risk of, of, of this is a this is a, a very important and kind of a scary statistic, but the lifetime rate of suicide in individuals with bipolar disorder is is estimated to be about fifteen times that of the general population, um, and in bipolar disorder accounts for one quarter of all completed suicides, um, and a past history of suicide attempts and. Um, present days spent in a depressed episode that greatly increases the risk for potential suicidality. Um, bipolar, you know, we talk about coping and we talk about um, strategies in managing it. Uh, there's a lot of consequences of bipolar and individuals with bipolar um, that, that, return to a fully functional level prior to the onset of their symptoms, um, approximately 30% show severe impairment in work role function. And if you go back to the episode I did on the life tasks, the Adlerian life tasks, with the work task being the most important task of life, more than the, than the sex task and the social task, you know, having, you know, impairments in, in work impact, you know, financial stability, impact relationships, and can lead to a whole host and a whole variety of other um conditions that could possibly lead to substance abuse or eating disorders, self-injurious behaviors, contemplating suicide. Um, you know, functional recovery um, lags substantially behind recovery from symptoms, especially with occupational recovery, um, lower socioeconomic status, uh, lower education compared with the general population. So these are really important things. That's why getting that background information is so crucial because it helps to build a picture. Uh, you don't wake up one day and, and sometimes say that you're bipolar. And there is a lot of comorbidity, a high comorbidity between bipolar and ADHD. And let me see, I, I, try, I have this, I use this a lot. 70% of individuals, I'm citing a study that I can't remember who did it, but 70% of individuals with a primary diagnosis of bipolar disorder, meaning that was the disorder that manifested first, have a secondary diagnosis of ADHD. Interestingly and ironically, 30% of individuals with a primary diagnosis of ADHD, meaning that was diagnosed first, go on to further develop bipolar disorder. And I've mentioned this in other episodes, the diathesis stress model is the interaction, diathesis being the world. No, I'm sorry, diathesis being, uh, you know, genetics and, and physiology, stress being just just the world and what confronts us and and you know overproduction of glucocorticoids um, can can result in, in genetic mutations and 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 turn on genes that may otherwise may ha may be dormant uh, so it's no no uh, 
you know, I, I've referenced this in one of the episodes of the Stress, a great book by Robert Sapolsky, who's not a psychologist, but I think he's in the world of he studies monkeys, uh, but he wrote a great book called, uh, if you want to learn about stress, uh, is why zebras don't get ulcers. You know, think about the titles. What do they have to worry about? Well, I think they have to worry about getting killed by, uh, you know, lions and stuff like that. But it's it's a really good book if you want to understand the whole whole stress response. But but coping with, with, with bipolar uh, can be very difficult because people generally like mania. Um, and, and, and when people are manic, they engage in behaviors that have a high degree of pleasurability, but a high degree of potentially negative consequences. Hypersexuality without regard for protection or infidelity, um, maxing out credit cards, um, buying rounds of drinks for people at the bars, uh, hopping on a plane to Vegas because they're feeling so good and dopamine is flooding the system that they feel amazing and, and people love mania. And a lot of times during a manic episode, people will often stop their medication. Um, and the, it, it's followed by a major depressive episode and and major depressive disorder that which is unipolar depression in my in my experience is very is very different than bipolar depression which is a much much darker darker place to be um and those are the times when people usually will you know psychiatric hospitalizations uh are usually when people are in that manic episode and they're running down the street at three in the morning naked uh claiming that um you know they're they're the messiah now that gets into a whole philosophical debate because maybe they are you know who read a question but you know at our field the key you know the main thing is you know doing no harm and protecting someone against hurting themselves or hurting other people so it's always erring on the side of caution but you know definitely bipolarity uh from my opinion you know and there are a lot of people that that go unmedicated uh is a disorder that 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 generally requires medication to stabilize an individual's functioning. Um, it, you know, the functional consequences are, you know, is in terms of getting somebody to one first get the neuropsych eval so they can have the diagnosis. Then you know how to effectively treat it because a lot of times people will come in. They people don't come in generally when they're manic. They may present in an emergency room or a, a psychiatric facility. In a, in a manic state, but a lot of times people will present, uh, in, at least to myself and also to, I think, prescribers in a depressive state and talk about their depression. And it, it's very important in, 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 in assessing for, for, for bipolarity. Um, you know, when I ask the questions, like, you know, it, it, one of the crucial, crucial symptoms that you, that you have to focus on is a decreased need for sleep. Now, this is not insomnia. You know, insomnia is an inability to sleep despite desperately trying to sleep. Whereas in bipolarity and mania, a decreased need for sleep is someone sleeping for three days or not or three hours not sleeping for several days. That is a key component, and especially when that starts to happen, that's when that ramping up starts. Where the where the brain is shifting its chemistry to move into the manic episode, and sometimes people will use substances to kickstart mania, cocaine, abuse of stimulant medications. So again, this is why testing is so important because if if you need if if you think there might be ADHD, so many things mimic ADHD, and stimulant medications can have a completely 
opposite effect on an individual's functioning and actually worsen symptoms, whether that's depression or, you know, the, if it can be misused to kickstart um, a manic episode. But getting into treatment with a provider, and, 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 and it's important, like I was saying, when I'm asking about the decreased need for sleep, the grandiosing euphoria, I spend a lot of time, if this is the kind of the, the direction that we're going in, you know, if we think this might be a symptom or, or, or you know, a viable diagnosis to consider is, is this really a transition into an alternative mood state or are these just good days when you're not as depressed? And I think I, you know, I'm guessing here, but I'd say 50-50, that when I kind of explain it that, you know, something like, yeah, I don't really engage in all that stuff, Um I just, I'm not as depressed, but you have to look at the behaviors that occur. So, you know, how do you, how do you cope with bipolarity? It's, I, I think from my opinion, it's definitely needs to be controlled with medication. Um, the depression part, I think can really be controlled with, with, with psychotherapy and cognitive behavioral therapy and learning how to navigate it and, and be able to track your symptoms because are there things that are, you know, are there situations or behaviors that may be exacerbating, you know, uh, or, or increasing the likelihood of going into one of these two different episodes. Um, you know, family members, it, it's hard to watch because a person, you know, if they're in a manic episode, you got to sometimes just wait it out. But err on the side of caution if you think they're putting themselves into um, – into a dangerous situation or they're putting them others into a dangerous situation. You know, if they're driving their car and they put their children in the car and they're not putting them in car seats, that's a dangerous situation because again, these are not bad people. There's just no regard for the consequences of, of their behavior. Um, so I'm going to let Julie pop on. We're not talking about mixed episodes. That's, that's totally different. We're, I'm, 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 that's for a different episode. I'm just sticking with bi oh. bipolar one and just the, to clarify what it is and coping mechanisms and yeah. it's, it's definitely something that needs to be medicated lithium being the medication of uh, you know primary primary medication latuda lamictal um but i'll let julie kind of speak speak to this i know we've talked about this but this you know people ask like how do you cope with how do you cope with bipolar i think and i think julie espoused the same view a huge part of coping is being getting the right diagnosis first of all through an evaluation being on the right medication and, you know, I mean, Julie could talk about, the, you know, unipolar depression versus bipolar depression and the danger of going on an SSRI when there's bipolar is, you know, could be really detrimental. So, Hi, everyone. I just wanted to pop on for a couple of minutes just to talk a little bit about not necessarily the medication because I have spoken about medication, how to medicate. But I think, um, you know, we don't, um, Cora doesn't really see the direct messages in our Instagram page. Um, when I have time, I scroll them, but I don't answer people through that um, modality. So because Cora gives out his cell phone and his email, um, if you have any questions regarding um, whether it's you something you're going through yourself or whether or not it's a loved one or or a family member um, going through something, <clears throat> definitely reach out to us via phone, whether you shoot us a text or shoot us an email or give us a call. Um, I am going to talk a little bit about, because I did see a direct message that 
Uh, I saw a couple actually. Um, but I think it the tricky part about bipolarity um, is that it requires insight. Um, as a medication provider, and even before that, being a therapist, working with people with bipolarity is extremely challenging. But it's also, it can be extremely successful. Um, and that's kind of what I want to put out there. So most of the time, um, people don't show up for help during manic episodes, unless, of course, like with my clients, um, they've either hit rock bottom, much like it's different than addiction, um, although addiction sometimes is a very strong variable in bipolarity because of the self-medication aspect of things. Um, and how important it is that people don't generally seek treatment during a manic episode, um, just to reiterate what Cora said earlier. They don't because they're having too much, it's not necessarily they're having too much fun. They're in a grandiose state and they're in a state where they're impervious to the world. They are literally, it's almost like an adolescent or a 20 something feeling like, um, you know, just uh, yeah, but like just invincible. Um, people in manic episodes feel invincible. And the important part I think as a provider um, for me, at least, is people who have bipolar mania know what's coming next. And it's if you can get someone not necessarily in remission, I mean, God, remission is ideal, but if you can get somebody the help they need to stabilize them and maintain a, a proper uh, medication dosha, dosage, be it a mood stabilizer, an anticonvulsant, which we use as mood stabilizers, and or atypical antipsychotics or typical antipsychotics, whatever whatever happens to be the um, the compounds used to help in the treatment of bipolarity. It's also important to get people into not just a state of remission, but on enough medication that it will stave off future episodes of depression and mania. Um, so the, the relationship with a, a person who has bipolarity, they have to be scared by their manic episode. In my opinion, just in my opinion, in my travels, most people get better when they're like, oh shit, that was scary. And they woke up in the emergency room or they woke up somewhere unexpectedly or they wound up getting kicked out of their house uh, because they pulled an all night or several day bender, you know, going off on, you know, doing grandiose things and spending tons of money and having sexual experiences that are incredibly impulsive. Um, just to name a few, but usually it's reckless behavior. It's speeding, um, it's partying, um, it, but uh, on the flip of that, um, you know, it's also a very creative time for them. And I think that to speak to, it's not insomnia as much as it is a lack of need for sleep, meaning it's like a, a locomotive engine that is just driving this person through their manic episode and they have, they don't have any control over it. The insight, because they're in a state where they're elated 
and euphoric and they think sometimes think they're Jesus or, you know, they think they're somebody very, very powerful and influential. Um, again, invincible. Um, so when they're in states like that, it's important that they have an understanding of how scary it is. So I see it correlates a lot with addiction when someone says, oh, I hit rock bottom and they're lying or they think they did, but they actually didn't. And that's something that I've seen on inpatient units um, and also in my practice. So there is a couple of, you know, how, how bad does it have to get for you to hit rock bottom? Well, you have to, you have to want to get better. You have to want, man, I'm meaning you, but someone who has bipolar mania, once it scares them, they're like, whoa, I, I can't go back there again. You know, whether it's a scare to their own personal safety or whether it's a scare that they might have almost hurt somebody else or maybe they did or whether they realize there's a lot at stake here now because someone's given them a major ultimatum. And usually what will happen out of that is um, that's 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 an opportunity to get treatment. That's an opportunity to actually treat and stave off mania before it recurs again. Um there are certain medications that really focus on mania. Uh, that would be lithium, um, would be one. Um, the Depakote, um, uh, Tegretol, um, Lamotrigine doesn't really treat um, mania as much as it does target bipolar depression and irritability and agitation. But they all treat that as well. Um, the atypicals are what we reach for now because of their side effect profile is less intrusive and invasive than the uh, typicals, which are the old old medications, the, the ones, the first generation antipsychotics. I've talked about this before. I don't think I need to get into that again now. But usually we will um, use them as adjunct or as a uh, polypharmaceutical kind of treatment for uh, bipolar mania and depression. Um, Lots of meds out there for that. A lot of very good ones. Um, we use Abilify. We use. We even use IM injections. I've talked about those before with schizophrenia, but it's also helpful with um, schizoaffective disorder and also bipolarity. Um, but again, you know, that's just a personal personal preference. The big the biggest issue is with bipolarity is once you get somebody stabilized on medication. And I'm not talking about the people really just show up when they're depressed. Um, and that the first line of treatment in, in that in depression is an SSRI or an SNRI. So people who don't have, who enjoy their mania can be very protective of their mania. Um, they know the ride is the ride and they don't want to, so, but they don't know that an antidepressant is going to aggravate the situation, but they're showing up because they're ex profoundly depressed. Um, and then the antidepressant can or cannot sometimes, if not most of the time, can tip a bipolar person over into mania or someone can become extremely depressed and become suicidal. So those are two um, risk factors when introducing an SSRI or an SNRI um, when someone just shows up in your office as depressed. That's why neuropsych testing is crucial. And I think I can speak for myself as well as my fellow providers and my colleagues. We all feel the same way. Everyone's nervous about, unless it's a very straightforward situation, 
if you gather a great history, again, you're only as your history is only as good as your patient reports and the questions you ask and how on point they are with their actual history, their own insight into their behavior. Um, the biggest problem with bipolarity is people go off their medications and that's what happens. People feel better. Oh, I feel better. This happens in major depression as well. People, and it's a very natural instinct. It's just the research points to the fact that that's a never do. And a never do meaning you need to get into remission when it's major depression. Um, I've talked about that before. I'm happy to talk about that again. But that basically means you're symptom-free for 1.5 to 2 years with even with not even a, a remote um, um, discontinuation of your medication prior to that. Um, bipolarity... Can it get into remission? Have I seen people stay stable? Yes, but do is there a hint of mania? Sure, there's. You can you can see the pressured speech. You can see the flight of ideas. You can see where they're they're kind of um, you know um, not focused, um, more agitated, irritable, um, frustrated, anxious. Um, all of these mood states within a mood state. So mania is a very scary mood state to be in. My bipolar people who have bipolar 2, um, I also am extremely interested in what their hypomanic episodes are like. So I ask lots of questions. Are they getting into trouble? Well, sometimes people get body piercings or they'll color their hair, you know, pink or something like that. I'm just throwing out just examples. But they're not necessarily getting in cars with their kids going, you know, 100 miles an hour down the road because they're in the state of mania. Hypomania is a little bit less. Um, I, I feel like usually people don't wind up in hospitals. I can't say that's always the case, but usually it's when people are in a really creative state. They're in a very happy state, but they're also in they have some modicum of self-control and they're not typically getting trouble at work. So. Throwing all of this in, because every disorder that we talk about is a medical condition, that people actually wind up behaving. It's a behavior that is a result of their medical condition. This is, I think, the piece where Cora and I feel so strongly about, is that you can see it in movies, you can see it when you're in the city, you can see it, you know, just seeing people walk down the street. I've seen it too very recently, been in and out of Boston, you know, seeing a lot of people who you know are probably addicts, but also definitely struggling with mental health issues at the same time. Um, and what do people do who can't get medication? They use, they, they self-medicate with whatever floats their boat. Um, and that's, that's a whole other issue. But so that's thank you. So how so to answer this uh, direct message that we received uh, probably a week ago, what are the coping skills that you can put in place, or what are the risk factors, or what? Uh, how can you do this? How can you? Okay, um, I think having really good providers is essential. Having insurance is essential. I think it's really difficult for people to get treatment who don't have insurance at all. Um, even even public insurance, like uh, the, the state insurance plans. Even Medicare sometimes um, can be difficult. So 
Um, if you can get stabilized on medications, if you can find a provider, um, like I said, talk to your primary care. They don't typically like to get into the mood stabilizers and all that stuff. I think they are more than willing and comfortable. They very often will work with ADHD. They'll work with depression and anxiety. Um, but for the most part, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's more complicated, just like I wouldn't treat someone's diabetes and I wouldn't treat someone's hypertension. You know, um, I, it's not my lane. It's not my specialty. Um, it, again, the insight. So I would say if you have been diagnosed with having bipolar or you have a family or lo- family member, or loved one, or someone you're close to that you're concerned about or a partner that has bipolarity, talk about it when it, during a calm time. Talk about it during calm times. You can't, it's like talking to a drunk person when someone's manic. They're not going to hear you. They're not going to respond. They're going to be like, oh, see ya. You know, they're going to be like the roadrunner and be like running off in the other direction. Um, and so I think that that's the most important part. And for someone to get before a provider that they trust, which, yes, I, in a perfect world, wouldn't that be great? But at least get some sort of provider, be it a therapist, be it someone who does therapy and meds. But someone to tell you exactly what it is that's going on, because the compassion has to be, this is a chemical disorder that has nothing to do with who the person is. This has to do with brain chemistry. This has to do with sodium mischannel firing. This has to do with kindling in the brain. This has to do this, and it comes out as behavior. And that's where the stigma lies. That's where the intolerance lies. That's where the people get freaked out and they just judge and they judge and they judge. However, I feel like the more you, yeah, I dialogue. Yeah, <clears throat> just just listening to Julie, I think I, I agree with her that it's definitely a, a neurochemical and the behavior is the result. Yes, I think the ethical question is what responsibility does the person have for the behaviors or any transgressions that they commit during a manic episode if it's strict, strictly physiology. Well, that's a I'm really good... I'm asking you... No, I've, I've, I've worked with people, depending on what prison they've gone to, for, for behaviors, criminal behaviors. And let me tell you something. They don't get their meds. Not very often they do not get their meds. And, um, or they just get the... Not the meds that they were prescribed and fairly stabilized on or stabilized on. They get what's in the jail. They get what's in that pharmacy in the jail. And I'm not criticizing jails. I'm not criticizing any of that. Um, but I do know that if you think about it, um, with addiction too. But, you know, at the end of the day, when you're an adult, you're responsible for your own behavior. And I guess that that's even though, um, but if you have a question and it's mental health issues, don't, aren't you responsible for yourself? If, what if it's cardiac issues? Aren't you going to get treatment? Um, if it's uh, cancer, are you going to get treatment? Diabetes, I mean, you're going to sue the candy companies? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're going to go after and litigate against, you know, the candy companies because you've developed type 2 diabetes. Um, I mean, there are all kinds of things. And, and I think that people do tend to blame providers. Um, I, I think that people blame this is a, a blaming country. I don't know about other countries, but this country in the United States is always pointing the finger. Got to blame somebody, but whatever. That's a whole other. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, I, I just say, you know, revisit 
um, make notations. I always tell my bipolar patients, track your moods. There, there, there is a methodology to this. Now, is it always every two weeks? Is it always, is it once a year? When do you tend to become manic? Some people become manic in the spring. Some people become manic in the summer. I find that mostly they're depressed during the winter months. That's just my, my, um, but I think it's, you know, when the sun comes out and the days are longer, um, that can be quite activating. Um, the insomnia part is, I want to come back to that too, because when people say they're not sleeping, this is not like what mania looks like. Mania looks like they're revving, they're, they're awake and they're not tired. They will go for days and not sleep doing 50, maybe 50 different projects, never get anything done. Or maybe they're like artists, you know, artists, musicians, all these creative, talented people who also struggle with mental illness can really be creative in their, in their state of mania, as long as they're safe and it's like not out of control. Um, but that looks like five days. And then at the end of that, what comes next? They hit a wall, they're exhausted, then the dep- they know what's coming next. It's depression. So, and bipolar depression, I feel, is a much deeper depression than a lot of major depression, depressive disorders. And sometimes the balance is trying to figure out, okay, what meds are going to work the best for this person? I don't want to over-medicate them. When is it safe to rein in and, and kind of get them off of a lot of their medications? And when is it not a good idea? And a lot of that is just trial by fire. It's, it's really just a wait and see. Um, sometimes if patients have really risky, high risk factors in their history where they've gotten into lots of trouble um, and or they've attempted their life that time or two, you know, I don't usually mess with that. I usually let things be. But if there are people who, um, I think people too, when we talk about medication, a lot of people, when they're bipolar too, I don't, they're not always medicated. So, I mean, they're, they're, they can be very high functioning. Cyclothymic people, very high functioning typically. Um, even bipolar one people can be very high functioning. So I, it, again, it's like staying on your meds, not throwing them out as soon as you feel better. That's when it starts to impact work. That's when it starts to impact work. So when you start going off of your medication and you don't recognize, and this is the part where it's so helpful to have loved ones and family members that really care about you, who will help with you, track your moods, track, uh-oh, here, I'm going to give you a code word. This is when you're starting. I'm noticing that you're becoming manic. You're becoming manic. You're going there. What? what how to rein you in. Um, a lot of people wind up being sectioned um, because, again, the mania can come on very quick and very strong. Um, it can be extremely intense and very difficult. So if you know the nature of, if you educate yourself enough to know, and if you love someone enough to want to be there for them and help them in the process, is like attend a therapy session or therapy sessions with your loved one, um, whether it's your kid, your partner, or a sibling or a parent, you know, just attend. Um, these people are usually on medication for most of their life. And, um, you know, I, I do think it sometimes mellows with age, but not always. Um, I've seen, and you also have personality disorder stuff too, that can be, you know, involved in, in all of that. And you can also have trauma. 
with all of that. So, you know, there's, it's usually not just straightforward. It's very rare when something's just one thing. Um, that's almost a blessing. Um, usually people have multiple issues going on at the same time, whether it's bipolar and ADHD or bipolar and anxiety, um, but how do you treat the anxiety? And, you know, just there's all different um, ways to kind of pick it apart. Um, but, you know, if there's any concern whatsoever, I do know that there are, um, you know, there are partial day programs. The emergency room is always open. Um, if someone is becoming manic, it's very difficult for them to hide it. Uh, like, again, it's like a locomotive. It's like a frenetic energy. You, you can see the person, you know, and how they're acting, and, but they don't usually see it. So if you can get someone into a healthcare provider when they're in that state, or ideally on the precipice of that state, where can you have that conversation where, oh, here we go again, you know, make sure you take your medicine and, you know, having loved ones who are invested in you, that's, or even if you don't have loved ones, you, you might not, and you have pets, but, you know, taking responsibility for yourself and caring for yourself is one thing that everybody needs to learn to do. And, um, and I can say that, you know, from personal experience. So, um, I hope this was helpful. God bless you. We love you. Please, um, reach out to us. Uh, please, the DMs are just not getting answered right away. And we don't have a platform to, um, you know, I'm just going to say it right now. If you're not feeling safe, go to the emergency room. Um, you know, if in the, in the, if you talk to your primary care, emergency room is always open. Um, and that's the place to be. And even if you don't have any money, you can still go to the emergency room and get care. Thank you. What's that? Ow! Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I stepped on Julie by mistake. Um, so this, I know this was a longer topic, but it's, it's definitely one that is complex and probably needs to be re revisited. Uh, but I wanted to give you more factual information uh, prevalence rates and comorbidities. Um, you know, I guess like I brought up the question, you know, like, you know, ethics, um, ethical dilemmas of is somebody responsible if, if it's strictly neurotransmission? Um, I think that's a conversation for another time, but we wanted to follow up with this, um, because it is a severe disorder. It is, it's one that can be effectively managed and treated with medication and cognitive growth therapy. Um, but again, in my experience as a neuropsychologist, there are multiple layers. Uh, and as Julie said, rarely is it ever just bipolar. Uh, rarely is it ever anxiety. Rarely is it ever just depression. Um, so, I mean, there's usually comorbid PTSD, uh, an anxiety disorder, an eating disorder, uh, history of abuse, sometimes OCD. So, uh, as please take my advice and get in a neuropsych eval, it will give you the answers, definitive answers, and that will pave the way for an effective, comprehensive treatment plan. So, until next time, uh, feel free to reach out to me uh, through Psychology Today at Outlook.com. You can follow us on Instagram at psychology, unplugged, 
under psychology underscore unplugged underscore. You can uh, con- uh, contact me directly, uh, 617-750-9411, East Coast Standard Time in the United States. Looking forward to all of the people coming from different parts of the world over the next few weeks. Um, feel free to reach out. And until the next time, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, be well, and we will talk next week. Bye, guys.